Welcome, listeners, friends, family, maybe just somebody who stumbled up on us to the Florida Keys Weekly Show and Podcast. I'm Brett Myers, your host, and I am looking forward to a great interview today. At least the uh, person I'm interviewing is great and fun in spite of me, uh, but I'm going to take us to him, and I think you're going to enjoy it. We have an incredible guest uh, from all walks of life, all kinds of talents on this show, but this one's going to be very unique. Uh, before we talk to him and I, I tell you more about him and this person, I do want to say some thank yous to, uh, first of all, our, our listeners in Radioland, WKWF, AM 1600 and FM. 103.3 here locally in the Florida Keys and throughout the world. Thank you for listening in, especially you early morning risers who hear this. And of course, our podcast, Florida Keys Weekly Podcast listeners out there on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, you name it. And you can, of course, find this show and many others at keysweekly.com. That's K-E-Y-S-W-E-E-K-L-Y, keysweekly, just like it sounds, dot com uh, for local media, all that's happening around the Florida Keys. And of course, this podcast and many others you can find there. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Overseas Media Group, OMG, uh, locally owned and operated in the Florida Keys. They produce everything from websites, digital content, social media, SEO, you name it, all the good stuff that your business needs. The great thing about those guys, they come to you with a world of expertise, all the stuff that you need, but they can also bring the local service that you expect when you need that call back and that turnaround time done. So Overseas Media Group, OMG, thank you for being a part of this show. And we are going to get ready to introduce our guest. I'll tell you a little bit about him before he calls in. He is none other than Tom Everhart, the artist Tom Everhart. Some of you know exactly who that is. Some of you are going to need to Google it and say, oh, I know who that is. Tom is the the uh, only licensed and authorized artist to be able to reproduce and produce Peanuts strip art and and Peanuts Charlie Brown the whole gang artwork here in the United United States and globally and beyond. Um, he started special projects for Charles Schultz in New York and Tokyo. He's been featured in the White House. Of course, we've all seen those Met Life campaigns and commercials. That was all his artwork. And he, again, as I said, he's the only artist authorized and educated by Schultz to draw the actual Schultz line, which is pretty amazing when you think about the power of the peanuts and the influence and the visibility it has just here in the United States and the world. Uh, Everhart continues to lecture around the world on the art artwork of Charles Schultz, and he communicates that unique collaborative relationship that he had with him uh, as a cartoonist and a painter, and that's really what he has dedicated his life to today uh, and continues to do. Uh, One of the reasons we're having him on the show today is our great friends over at Ocean Blue Galleries here in Key West, just an incredible gallery, and if you've been there before, you've, you've stopped in, you've seen Everhart's work with the Peanuts line. And you've seen the unique way he he goes about that. And they just do a great job at that studio with his work and others. But here's what's really cool. If you're listening to this ahead of time, and if you're not, that's okay, too. It's going to be a great interview. I can't wait to talk to him. But if you're listening to this, uh, Friday, March 10th, and Saturday, March 11th, from 7 to 9 p.m. down at Ocean Blue Galleries, that's March 10th and 11th, Ocean Blue Galleries, 7 to 9 p.m., that's over at 109 Duval Street here in Key West, where where, uh, our studios are at. Everhart will be there 
Uh, it's just going to be an incredible opportunity. You, of course, you can see his work, but you know, just more as you hear him talk today, you're going to see. You're going to say, "Man, if I'm anywhere nearby, I uh, get a chance to go meet him and talk to him, and just be a part of him being near his artwork." As you can look at the artwork and talk to him, uh, I can't think of anything more unique. But um, you can check more of that out at OceanBlue.gallery. Uh, you can just pull that up, and that's here in Key West. Of course, most of you that are local have been there. If you're not, when you're in Key West, stop by there just a, just a great place i have no problem giving them a shameless plug because i love going in there and i can stay for hours just 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 from from top to bottom so back to everhart uh he's going to be calling in here shortly tom everhart and we're going to talk to him about his life and that relationship that he had with charles schultz going back to the 80s early 80s like 1980s when they met we'll talk about that talk about where he's been featured talk about some of the inspirations he's had over the years to continue this legacy and really make some of it his own um and and we'll go from there so i'm waiting on the call looks like he's calling in right now so folks without further ado uh the endearing the amazing tom everhart uh artist is here with us and he's calling in to the florida keys weekly show tom it's great to have you so joining us now on the Florida Keys weekly podcast and show, as I just mentioned, the endearing, none other, the, the, the legendary artist, Tom Everhart. He is, he is here with us on the phone. Tom, uh, just an honor and a privilege to have you come on the show, particularly as you get here to Key West and get ready for, the, uh, for your event there at Ocean Blue Galleries. Tom, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you're calling in. We're, we're anticipating uh, coming to see you. I know you get a lot of questions around the Peanuts and, uh, and Charles Schultz, and I definitely want to uh-huh. talk to you about that as we dig into this today. I want to talk to you about the event at Ocean Blue Galleries. But before we get started, obviously, the studio down there, uh, you're very familiar with. How often do you make it into Key West, uh, Tom, these days? Uh, it's interesting. I haven't been to Key West in about 26 years, so I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated to see the changes because I hear abundance of changes from friends who talk about it. That is incredible. So 26 yeah. years ago was your last yeah. time here because you're so prominent awesome. here with your artwork at Ocean Blue Galleries, of course. And I know you're yeah. all over the globe, and we'll talk about that. But man, yeah. 26 years. Do you remember what you you did last time you were here in Key West? I think the last time I was there, uh, my Myself and my now wife, Jennifer, and I uh, rented a car in Miami and drove all the way through because I was familiar with some of the keys. Uh, I used to go down there quite a bit when I was on the East Coast uh, with a bunch of friends. But, you know, old fashioned style, old school style, sleeping on the beach, that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, So the last trip was more university style student trip than it was <laughs> luxury beautiful scenes the new key west trip well it must have gone pretty well you said you know jennifer is your, i've read that jennifer is your wife now obviously but mm-hmm. she was not then so yeah. uh, mm-hmm. how soon after did you guys get married uh you know we didn't get married until about <clears throat> 2006 okay so right. we yeah it was and we really we always thought we were married but uh when we started seeing what happened, especially after Sparky died, Charles Schultz, mm-hmm. um, we started realizing how important it was to get the, the estate for the paintings together in case something did happen to me or her, both of us. And um, we found that, that legally it was more beneficial for Jenny and I to be married than it was not to be. I mean, the laws, at least in that time, 2006 favored it. 
So we decided, let's have a great big party. <laughs> and we had a big party and got married and uh, actually did a 10-year anniversary in 2016. That's uh, great. In French Polynesia, where our, my other studio is. I have some questions about that as well. Now, just real quick on Jennifer, I won't make you go through, you know, uh, your anniversaries with me, but was she a Peanuts fan when she met you? Was she just a fan of you as an artist, as a man? Like what, or is is she, is she a fan of uh, Sparky as you call Mr. Schultz and uh, Um, all things Peanuts? Well, she didn't really become a fan of Sparky until she met him and became friends with him. Then she was overwhelmed with his friendship. Uh, Prior to that, you know, I don't think she was a a huge Peanuts fan. She was more a big arts fan. Okay. Uh, She was was living and working in neighborhoods that were big art institute communities and and was studying photography herself at the Art Institute in Baltimore. So she... um, was more on the, on the art side of it than she was the the cartoon side of it. Gotcha. And, and that's a question I have for you as we, is. Yeah. I know a lot about you just from the Key West experience and I, and I do sincerely love going into ocean blue galleries and looking at your work. It's just fascinating. Um, and not just the peanuts. And I, you probably get this from a lot of fans, not just the peanuts n- nostalgia that you get, but just the way you present it and have you carried on that legacy? And I want to talk about that. Uh, I know you met, um, Mr. Schultz back in 1980, Charles Schultz in 1980 or so around that time. And I can read all that. There's not a lot about you, Tom, leading up to that. I mean, I know you were at the Yale School of Art, incredibly talented as you went back and got your graduate work there and you did some things. But you in grade school, high school, it was... Were you a fan? And this is a cliche question, I know, but were you a fan of the Peanuts back then and Charles Schultz? Did, or was there a moment that inspired you? I know you had a meeting with him and it changed some things, but what was it like leading, you know, early, your earlier life leading up to that moment? Interestingly, <laughs> uh, this is the one question I, not one, but one of the uh, several questions I get every time I do a lecture of any kind or interview. And it is the one question I'm always not dreading answering, <laughs> but but I fear the the disappointment and the answer I'm going to give. I was never a Peanuts fan when I was uh, younger. When I was in school, uh, university, I my parents just weren't the kind of people that liked putting me in to settings where I sat and watched cartoons or looked at cartoons. Um, I guess you might say they were a bit snobby, <laughs> uh, but. I never even looked at the strip, maybe once or twice, just out of interest. But when I met him, that all changed completely. Well, and that's an, it is, yeah. and with respect to you, I guess you get this a lot. And I thought about this as I was preparing to speak with you, Tom, and we're with Tom Everhart, uh, the legendary artist who who is very much known for his relationship with Charles Schultz, and the only uh, official artist that's able to carry on and and and, and create the artwork of the Peanuts. Um, but it's hard to interview. In my mind, I was thinking I'm going to interview you, but it's hard to really separate you from Charles Schultz when we talk to you. Although this is about you and what you've done, and I want to I want to get us there. But to do that, can you tell me about that moment that changed your? It had to change the trajectory of your life, I assume. It was that 1980 that you met him? Uh, how did that happen in a nutshell? And, and what was that like? I mean, did you expect him to be? Uh, the man and friend that you know that he became for you and, and with you uh, in that moment, or or did that progress over time? What was that like? That initial meeting when you two collided, I guess you could say. 
No, it was it was all a glorious, glorious surprise. Um, it's interesting that that time it was in 1980 when I met him, and in 1980, the way things were setting up around me in my own personal environment, it was actually almost announcing his introduction into my life. It was very strange. All, all of my friends, and, and I, this was when I was in New York, all of my friends in New York were sampling cartoons in their paintings. Okay. Uh, it, was a, it was a very common thing to do to appropriate someone else's cartoons, but they never used just one. It was like, you know, uh, Jean-Michel would use Bullwinkle and Popeye. And, uh, I mean, down the list of my friends, they all sampled from it. And so... What I was doing at the time, though, were very academic-looking paintings that revolved around the skeleton and very hardcore, not photorealism, almost more a Renaissance style of painting. Uh, very, very boring as I look back on it, and very dark too. The colors—I don't—I think, think the brightest color I used in those in those in that body of work was burgundy. <laughs> um, so. I wasn't sampling the cartoons like all my friends were, but everybody in my community was doing this. Um, I was looking for opportunities in New York to financially keep my painting career going. Mm -hmm. So I was taking freelance jobs here and there with different ad agencies and design agencies. And one of them in 1980 offered me a uh, freelance project that involved Sparky's work. Uh, they wanted to incorporate his work into their designs, and I got the freelance job to do it. I'll try to make this one short because this is the moment that is probably the moment. So weeks later, I'm, I, I've gone to the New York Public Library for days because we didn't have Google then, and I didn't have a cell phone to pick up and look up his work. So I went to the New York Library and made black and white Xeroxes of everything I could find on him. And I took it back, and I looked, and I inspected, and I examined and I could not do his drawings. And I accepted the project because I figured, you know, I've studied painting and, and all sorts of other fine arts avenues. Cartooning's got to be easy. And I found out that it was one of the most difficult projects I had ever faced in my life. So I was getting ready to confess to the agency that I had lied to them that I could do this project because I told <laughs> I quit cartoon. Um, and that night, I was getting ready to start one of my skeleton paintings. And what I would do with the work is I would do very small drawings of the skeleton paintings and then put them in a projector and project them up on a wall. And the wall was as big as 30 feet, uh, but I could make them any size. And this way I, I could scale the paintings to whatever size I wanted. Well, I stuck one of the drawings into the projector and it filled the entire 30 foot wall. And it was just all these beautiful black and white drawings and lines nothing that I could make out and I could not figure out what it was. And what I had done was I was drawing on the back of his black and white Xeroxes because I didn't want to waste the paper <laughs> and I was getting ready to throw them away. And I had turned it upside down a projector and projected his cartoon on that 30 foot wall. And I projected one of his black and white cartoons. And once they went up to the scale of 30 feet, mm -hmm. they translated into my language. They looked like brush strokes. If you look very carefully, and this is something that I have pushed on so many of my art friends for the last, since 1980, to look really closely at his, his compositions, his line construction, his pictorial space, because 
it's not what you are going to expect. Yeah, I think most people, because of Disney, we see these very smooth lines, these very um, almost casually cooperating lines with each other, where Sparky's got these lines that just get thin and fat and organic and straight, and it looks like brushstrokes. And immediately I understood what he was doing. And the next week I did all 18 of the storyboards that I needed for this project, turned it into the idea to see. They were happy with it. And they wanted me to come from New York to Santa Rosa to his studio, which I objected to because <laughs> I didn't want to meet him. And he see my copies of his drawings. And they no, why did, why did so you not want to meet him? If you don't mind me interrupting real quick, uh, what, what was the hesitation? Uh, oh, fear. Okay. <laughs> Because I, this is, was really one of the first times I'd done so much copying and inspection of someone else's work in school and academia. I, you know, studied the old masters like Michelangelo and Da Vinci, um, and you copied those drawings to learn. So I kind of did the same thing with his work. I was copying his drawings to learn more about how he drew when I was making these drawings. I didn't want him to see that process and to see how bad they were compared to his work. But they offered enough money to this poor little starving artist in New York that he said, okay, and I went. <laughs> and, and that was and the first meeting. That's the first, obviously the first time you guys met. When I read about, I don't know if I'm reading more into it or I want to, but it sounds like two men who really loved each other um, with a beautiful friendship and relationship. And you are obviously incredibly talented. There's just no way around it. And you know that the world knows that, but I'm sure a lot of artists wanted to do that for Charles Schultz. I think they probably still would. You're the one that has and does. And, and the only one allowed, there was something unique about what he loved about you. Um, and if I can get you to be my, I know how already just by speaking to you, how humble uh, you already are, but you know, how much of your, ability was it that captured Charles Schultz immediately versus that relate you as a human, the relationship relationship you guys had that that's, you know, no pun intended that spark up pretty quickly, or is it something that grew over time as you, as you guys began to work together? Well, the ability that I think drew of mine that drew him to us together, I should say was the way I see he he understood in, in that meeting that I went to, he wasn't supposed to be there, by the way. They, they talked me into going not only with the big money, but also with the information that it was just his business people that were going to be at this meeting. So I felt comfortable. But during this meeting, it, it got cold when I was standing up front pointing out all the drawings and explaining what I had drawn to, to his staff. And... I realized why the meeting had got so cold and quiet because he had come in and sat in the back of the room. And I remember exactly what he looked like. It's, it's frozen into my mind, even though it was 1980. He was wearing a blue matching running suit, like a jacket and a <laughs> pair of pants and white stripes down the side. And he got up during the meeting and walked to the table and everybody, it was like parting of the seas. Everybody stopped, didn't say a word. He looked at all the drawings and I thought, I'm dead. <laughs> this, you know, and then I thought, well, I'm just, freelancing this so I'm just going to lose this situation so it doesn't matter and he said to me he said looked at me and he looked at the drawings and he says when people come here and, and show us presentation drawings they're always either photostat copied or copied with tracing paper why I can tell you freehanded these drawings 
why didn't you copy them? And I thought this was a lecture from the teacher who was pissed off at me. Right. I was very, I was very scared. And I thought, I just got to be honest with him. What, what else am I going to do? Because I, I had like three seconds to answer this question. So I said to him, and I, I remember this word for word, I said, because I didn't want to lose the freshness of your originals. And it looked like I had set a special password to him. Huh. It just the whole mood changed. And he took me out of the meeting and we went into his studio and we stayed there for the rest of the day, drawing drawings of lines for the rest of the day. For like the next couple hours, we were just drawing these lines in his studio with India ink and pen nibs because I had never used Indian ink and pen nibs. It was a, it was a medium that I had never studied. This was a cartoonist medium, this, this India ink and these pen nibs. Okay. So I was learning things I had never touched or learned before. I even did the drawings on markers, not in pen nibs. Um, so he knew that I had looked at his drawings close enough, like no one ever had before, to see what his line construction was doing. And, and I think that is what clicked our relationship. Well, it, so from there, with Tom Everhart, Florida Keys Weekly Podcast, from yeah. there, your relationship with Charles Schultz and the work you began to produce was, was what, Tom? It, it was it, were you back on your own and showing him things? Was he putting you to, like, for those who don't, don't follow you as closely or know the story, just what took place in the years prior to 1980 in that moment or, or after, so, excuse me. Yeah. So after that was, uh, I think very fascinating years. The next, the next eight years were absolutely fascinating from 1980 to 1988. I struggled with the influence that I was getting from him and how it was influencing my own work, the skeleton paintings and the garden type paintings that I was doing at the time. I found the work that I was doing that was mind boring. And I found these projects that I was starting to do for him after 1980, because for about a year, from 1980 to 1981, we kept in touch a lot, either by facts. <laughs> That's so funny saying that. Either by facts or, or FedEx, or I would go out to Santa Rosa like once a month and just visit. Um, and I was learning little by little each time I went for him. And after about a year, when he realized I could imitate his line, just like the way he could draw it, he asked me if I would do special projects for him because it, it, everybody wanted him to draw something, some kind of magazine cover or for a, a design for something, but he didn't have the time. He was the only one, and this is so important that everyone needs to really hear and understand. He was the only one that did that strip. He was the only one that came up with the concepts. He was the only one that did the doodles that started each rough sketch. Wow. He was the only one that inked it in. He was the only one that lettered it. He was the only one that wrote the copy. It was his show. <laughs> it was completely his show. Uh, and that's pretty amazing. On top of that, he was published every day for 50 years. I don't know anybody in any medium that's been published every day for 50 years. I, I, I've looked and tried to find somebody published every day for 50 years. I don't and know many people that do anything for 50 years so well no, and no. successfully. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, and, and it was every day. So, <laughs> so after those, and during those eight years, I was doing all these various projects, great projects. I mean, covers of like 
uh, very popular magazines. I started off the the first couple of MetLife ads mm-hmm. that you that you would see the big billboards for. I remember the first time I flew into LA, uh, in the late eighties, and there was a huge billboard as you were coming out of LAX for. Uh, one of the MetLife drawings that I had done, and I took every single one of my friends to see this billboard. Um, was that the but, first time you'd you'd seen your work like that on a billboard, or, or were there other things you were oh, doing back? In, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because little artists didn't get to do that, but now that I was, you know, involved in this project, I was getting to do these really special things that I would have never had the chance to do probably before. Uh, that is just so incredible, and it, it, so that obviously ignited uh, you doing this for Charles Schultz and we're talking to Tom Everhart where and I know that you essentially become the only person licensed because of uh, Mr. Schultz granting you that you guys began that where you're the only one doing peanuts art but was there other people doing now, when you were doing that before all that occurred and you saw the billboard were there other people working for him and creating art or were or, or you one of the few still yeah, they weren't. They weren't actually working for him. They were working for the the licensing and media okay. group in New York, United Media. They had a mm-hmm. pool of their own freelancers um, that did really competent drawings of, of these, um, and they did a lot of the drawings. And but fortunately, because I was so getting so close to them, I was getting the, the cheesier, greater projects like the magazine covers and things. Um, the, the funny part was though, during these eight years, after the first year, I could tell that this work was influencing my own painting. And I began to discuss this with him and, and it was more in like laughter when we discussed it, like imagine paintings with this stuff in it. Cause he, cause you couldn't imagine at the time. And he kept saying, you know, you really should think more about it and think more about it. And I had other artist friends who were going, Oh my God, you have this opportunity and you're not doing it. But <laughs> I, but once again, I, let's go back to the fear. The, the art world would have sliced my head off if I had come out with a whole group of paintings that were just one cartoon character. Right. At the time, it, it had never been done, and it had never been thought about being done. The whole idea of sampling cartoons like all my friends are doing was acceptable because it was appropriation. But what I was doing and would be doing was an appropriation because I was learning from the person who created the work that I was appropriating from. So it kind of canceled out the appropriation. And there was, there was one other person and he was almost the same age as Sparky. It's interesting. I was at a party at Andy Warhol studio. This was a year before he died. Uh, He died in 87. So this was 1986. And a friend of mine had been telling him about this, concept of mine about doing these this work that was influenced by his work by Schultz's work um, and th- the first thing when I he said to me when I went over to shake hands with him was you know you really should do this because it's such a great opportunity and I said well, why is it a great opportunity because 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 everybody today is appropriating work from something he goes but because you're learning through the person that you're appropriating from it makes you see new art in a new way. And it kind of blew my mind. I even did a painting called Andy's, Andy's Tsunami that was all about that, that meaning, that talk. Uh, and a year later, I did start the work. That's- Although it wasn't... Be- but it wasn't because of Andy's comment that I started work either, though. 
<laughs> that's incredible. Just you having that conversation with Andy Warhol and he, he's inspiring you yeah. to, to move forward. Yeah. And, and you talk about Andy saying, uh, you know, you're looking at it in a new way. Um, Tom, one of the things that stuck out to me, and you can wiki this, I know, on you with the other interviews. So I was looking, at some, but t- a couple things stuck out across the board as I was reading about you. Uh, one, obviously, is is you, am I reading that right? Stage four colon cancer in 88. Yeah. But you were in John Hopkins, Hopkins and uh, I think there was a moment where some light came through a window in the comics that sort of inspired you. And I noticed later um, that you, I know you spent a lot of time in French Polynesia um, and there was a moment there. I think there were, you, you made comments about the, the, the colors there and the light there. It seems like, and again, I'm not an artist and we're near in, in the universe of you, but it just seems like there's the peanuts and there's the cartoon side of it and what that means to people. But you're, you're on the artist side. I mean, you're creating it for those people, but it seems like light and uh, in, in perspective and for to hear Andy Warhol say that to you and the way you look at it. Um, I'm not, I guess I'm kind of reaching here and I'm not trying to, but um, you, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that moment in the hospital? And, and I, you know, I don't talk to many people, uh, and just amazing to, to, to win and beat cancer, stage four colon cancer, and to come out. And you, and you use that as an experience, not just for life. And I certainly want to talk to you about that, but for your art. And it seems like light has played a big part in that. Yeah, uh, and I don't mind talking about the hospital situation at all. So um, I was talking about how between 80, 1980 and 88, I was doing all these projects and how I was being influenced. But still, I had this fear of what the art world would do to me if I came out with it. Well, in 1988, when I actually started the work, is when I was starting to do concepts for it, is when I got the stage four colon liver cancer. And not to make it all down and gloomy, I'll just breeze through that fast and tell you that I had two 10-hour surgeries. I died twice during the first surgery. Um, I I had a year of radical chemotherapy in in 89 after that. But in 1988, when I first got out of these surgeries, because it has gone as far as stage four, and I was misdiagnosed to the very last second, they were giving me like weeks and months to survive, and then I got the second surgery a month month later, and then they gave me more months to survive, and then I got the year of the chemotherapy, and they said, nobody at Johns Hopkins University, which is where I was getting the chemotherapy, had lived past two years, in your situation. So go out, have a beautiful life for two years. I mean, they were a matter of fact of it. They were basically saying two years at best. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I, all of a sudden, most people would probably cry or jump off a building. I went into a, a panic of glorious, um, new vision because all of a sudden I have my vision and my mind was freed up from that fear of, bringing a new body of work like this into the art world because I only had two years to live. What the hell did it matter if the art world wasn't going to accept what I was bringing into it? I, so for, I thought for the next two years, I got to paint all these things really fast so I can get them out of me, out of my brain. So for two years, I painted like a crazy fool. And then, of course, I kept living past that uh, 30, 35 years now. Uh, and Sparky and I both were realizing the whole time, like, you're still alive. This is very strange. So in 91, a few years later, he and the company I had mentioned before, United Media, arranged a agreement that allowed me to do this work uh, for the term of my life. He was worried about if he was gone, would somebody try to take this 
you know, this privilege away from me or something. So he wanted me to have legal protection. And that's how that happened. He just, and I, cause I was confused. I said, I don't need a legal contract. You're my friend. Right. The people in New York that you work with had all become my friends because I was doing projects for them. So they were kind to me. Uh, I was doing projects for the people in New York that Sparky wouldn't do. So all of a sudden they were able to, to do projects for their clients that he wouldn't do because, but I could draw them just like him. And I would even sign his name just like him. Oh, well. Wow. So they, so they were good friends too. They were all very helpful with me. And, uh, so from there on in, I just kept doing the work for the next 35 years. Uh, that is incredible. And in, in that moment, and then, I mean, in people, I'm not, we're going to be short on time. So I want to ask you a few other questions, but your yep. body of work, I mean, at that point, did you ever dream that you, whether it be through these types of paintings and your line art or in the other projects you did, did you ever dream that, Hey, I'm going to be in the Louvre and Tokyo and Rome and Venice, Chicago and, and so on and so on. I mean, was that, is that something you were aspiring to? Did you ever think that would happen? And, and when did you know that, that, you know, you said you saw, that billboard when you, out to, when you went out to California, yeah. um, what's one of the coolest places? And, you know, when did you realize that, Hey, I'm doing this and this is the trajectory I'm on. And then what's one of the coolest or most unique places that, you know, besides that billboard that you saw your work and thought that's really neat in the world. You know, it, it's interesting that most of my art friends do have the feelings that you were just talking about, about making it and getting into a museum and getting into the show here and the show there. I, you know, I'm grateful for all, all of the shows and the ex- exhibitions and, and uh, the good feedback that I've gotten. Really grateful. But I never really felt like I was making it until I realized that I was doing what I had wanted to do so badly, which was do, do work that I could discuss what I was thinking without the viewer knowing it right away. Huh. And, and that was something that I had searched for way before I knew Sparky. I had always wanted something like that. And this work gave me that avenue because what I do with the influence that I got from Sparky by using his characters and his line work is it acts as a camouflage for the viewer. So when the viewer is first confronted with my, with a painting of mine, for example, the, the immediate content that they come upon is Schultz looking. And so they get this, you know, there, there's a familiar feeling there. And Sparky was always saying to me over and over, and something I still hear today, he would say, you know, the really great artists of the world find a way to present something familiar from an unfamiliar angle. Huh. And that and that is exactly what I wanted to do because this was something familiar, so people felt comfortable. I could have been saying, I hate war, I hate guns, or whatever I was saying, and I wasn't going to offend a viewer who was against that thinking. Right. Because I had, cap- I had captured their, their being in the, in the time of the work standing in front of them. But then once they got into it and they heard the title, for example, uh, there was a body of work I did a while back called um, Seasick. And there were all these paintings of all the characters with waves in front of their faces like they were getting seasick out at sea. But it was spelled S-E-E, like the way you see. So it was really about the things that make me sick to see. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, but you would have never known that. You would have thought, oh, this is fun. The characters are floating in water. And, and it was all about things in the world that I objected to seeing that I couldn't ignore and had to put into work 
But I, as I said before, I didn't want the immediate content to turn off the viewer. I wanted to draw them in first and then let them play with whether they wanted to stay with this work or not, because it was about something maybe they didn't agree with. And I got to do that, and that's when I felt like I was making it. Okay. Uh, well, and you have, and I, and I am, and you did make it. So I've got to be very respectful to your time. I'm going to go <laughs> over, but a couple extra questions here. Um, and, and I could, and Tom Everhart, I could get lost and listen to these stories. Don't get me wrong all day for the, my, my listeners are going to think, why didn't you ask him more? But um, we are, we are going to be respectful to your time. Um, one of the, the questions I, I'll bring us back to is just, uh, you know, have you, I'm sure you get this a lot. Had you not met Charles Schultz or not gone down that, that path that you've gone down, um, would you, do you think you would continue in art and that be the path you ever think? What else would I be doing or presenting what type of studio? Or is that, is that something you ever think about? Yeah. You know, I, I've had that thought before many times and I think what canceled out that kind of thinking for me mm-hmm. was almost dying and then realizing that <laughs> I had no choice, I had no choice but to do this art. And I had no choice, not only because I had two years only to live and I wasn't no longer in the art world, but I had had this really special um, relationship with this person who was teaching me these things. And I wanted to be respectful back to that person and not just ditch it aside like, oh, this was nothing. When I know he wasn't teaching other people, you know, line construction and pictorial space uh, and all the things that he did. I mean, he, I have to say this before we end anything else, because it's so important when I talk about looking at his work. He had an encyclopedic range of human emotion and activity in his line inventory. He could take two, he could take three lines and make you feel sad. Now in painting or fine arts, you could spend a month on a painting to make you feel sad. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what opened my eyes up when I met him was the simplicity of how to express human emotion versus being so, so complex about it in a piece of work and just be simple about it and straightforward and authentic about it. Uh, it I, mean, I, I would yeah. love to have been a fly on the wall when you guys were together. <laughs> um, you know, do you have a favorite? And again, these are cliche questions, but I just, it's so neat yeah. to talk to you. Do you have a favorite peanuts character or one that you relate to the most? I know you're, you're coming in from the artist side of it, but you're so mm-hmm. close to all of it. Is there one that you, people ask you about and you say, Oh yeah, that's me or oh, that's who I love. You know, disappointingly, I don't have a favorite character. <laughs> it's all, it's all, it's all in the way they're drawn. Okay. For example, if I'm doing a painting that's, that's talking about questioning authority, let's say. Mm-hmm. I might want to use drawings of Peppermint Patty because not only did she have kind of that character about her, but if you examine the way her hair is drawn, her face is drawn, it all gives you that sense of that feeling. So I would go to her as a drawing, and she would be my favorite character of that moment because I'd be using her in this drawing. I do tend to use, and people have pointed this out, and I know it's true because I look at my work all the time, um, I do tend to use the character of Snoopy much more often, and Woodstock as well, but mostly mm-hmm. Snoopy, for the simple fact that he is much more versatile in the way he's drawn. Uh, he's, you know, he's got so many different characters and different moods, whereas a lot of the other characters, like the kids in the strip, move very little. Their arms go up and down to the sides. Their head might turn sideways and front ways, but they don't have the almost suspended animation that the character of Snoopy's drawings have in them. So 
he's, he's not my favorite character either, but I do use him abundantly more than I do the others just for the sake of his drawing uh, analysis, basically. There's something magic about the way you do it and, you know, and to carry on a legacy um, and present it to the world the way you have for Charles Schultz and that relationship is incredible. What can you, and I'll kind of ask you a last question or two here. Can you, if you wanted people to know something about Mr. Schultz or Sparky um, that maybe they wouldn't know, uh, what would you tell them? Um... He was probably one of the most different people I knew because my circle of friends were were these fine artists, you know, from places like urban areas like New York and L.A. And um, I lived in London for a while, Paris for a while. So I was always in these urban settings where Sparky uh, had moved out to Santa Rosa and uh, to the whole Napa Valley area where it's much more rural and country. And he's much more simple and I enjoyed that so much over all my other friends because he was just authentic and honest one of the things you can find quotes for him if you really read a lot about him is that he said one of the most important things in making his work was that he didn't offend anyone and I, I found that really interesting because I don't know any artist who care about if they're offending anyone or not Right, <laughs> in any art, in any art form, dance or theater, they they're making their work, but they're not. They don't have that consideration in their thought that they don't want to offend someone. And we're talking. He started doing this work in 1950. We're not talking about today's woke thinking. I mean, he was he didn't want to offend anyone, and that was something I found very special. But. <laughs> if you were with him at a function, a party or a convention or something like that out with, in a social setting, he did have a sharp wit. And my, <laughs> wife, Jen, my wife Jennifer says this all the time, that if, every once in a while he might say to someone, you know, you really need to lose 15 pounds. And then he would go <laughs> on to, to something else. And I don't know if he thought that was offending him or not, but he did have that wit. But in his strip, and in his strip, if you think about it, it's him talking to the viewer. Mm -hmm. He knew how to talk to people. And that was part of not offending someone. He, and he had to have known to talk to, to people because he did it. Like I said before, every day for 50 years, he talked to you. Yeah. So he, he knew how to talk to people. And he was that way. I was talking about how he was in public. He was also that way in public besides just having a sharp wit he knew if he, somebody had a certain interest, he knew how to talk to them. He knew how to talk to a group of golfers different than he would talk to me. Huh. He, he actually he just had a knowledge how to address a person and thus a viewer to a strip. Well, I think the book I'll read, if, it, if you guys do it, is, is your relationship with him and, and those times. It's, it's more than just you carrying on that legacy and, and your talent and the way you do it. Uh, the last question I'll ask uh, Tom Everhart here, uh, who I'm just so thankful to have on the show. It's been so fun. Um, and we're getting ready, Tom, for your show here, Ocean Blue Galleries, Key West. Um, that's such a great place. Uh, March 10th and 11th, the, both those evenings, 7 to 9 p.m. And people will get a chance to see you and, and chat with you there and, 
and bug you with the questions that I'm asking you here. But, uh, uh-huh. uh, but it, I know people are very excited to see you. I know how much you do in the communities like this that, that your, uh, your presence is in, your artwork is in. I know you've donated uh, recently to the SPCA and how much that yeah, meant yeah. to that organization here. Yeah. And uh, those things, it just goes so far. You don't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, you, you are who you are and you do it. Yeah. Um, so when people come into Ocean Blue Galleries this weekend, they're going to see a lot of your artwork. Of course, they can go to everhartstudios.com. Is that correct, Tom? That's the correct website, everhartstudios.com, and yeah, correct, uh, yeah. and see some things. They come in there and look at your artwork, uh, and they see this unique, again, I'm just such a layman novice here, but they, I mean, it's like Andy Warhol meets uh, this amazing inspiration with the peanuts. Just an incredible artwork. Um, how long does it take you to produce one piece, and then anything they should be looking for there uh, that maybe they wouldn't recognize or know when they come into the uh, to the uh, Ocean Blues galleries this weekend? Um, it's, it's unfortunate that we're doing this with phone and you're not in my uh, studio because it would be easier to understand that I work on usually anywhere from 25 to 50 pieces at one time. Wow. I, I have, I have two giant kind of basketball court floors, <laughs> uh, that I work in and one, one floor I work on 12 and 20 foot pieces and another floor I work on like six foot pieces. Uh, so I'm constantly working on a large group of work. So it's difficult to say how long one piece is, has taken because I'm working on other pieces alongside that one piece. Uh, uh, but I, I could, but I could guess and say there's been pieces that have come out in a week and there's pieces that have come out in a year. Okay. All right. And you're still actively always yeah. working on, on pieces. It's, you, it's not like you're taking a break or hiatus from it. Uh, seven days a week. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's seven days a week. Yeah. I don't, I work every day. Well, Tommy, Everhart. I, I've I've totally extended my time with you. I'm going to be down this weekend to say hello. I can't wait to see oh, you great. and check out the I work. I can't wait to see you too. And uh, thank, thank you for doing this. Thanks so much. No, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. We're looking forward to having you in Key West. Tom Everhart, Ocean Blue Galleries, Key West, March 10th and 11th this weekend, 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, once in a lifetime opportunity to go down and meet you. Again, thank you, and, and we'll look forward to having you in Key West. Thank you so much. Very kind. Tom, that's it. Thank you for doing this, man. That's uh, okay. a lot of fun. Again, I, I did extend my time. I apologize. I was trying to no, squeeze stuff no, in. No, so, uh, no, no problem. And I think um, Danny has some shared artwork of photos of you uh, we can use, I assume. Would that that'd be the best way to get those through him? Oh, yeah. Okay. Please, yeah. I'll We've reach out to him. Supply. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to let you get back to it. I've, I've kept you. Thank you. Okay, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, Tom. Thanks so much. Okay, bro. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.